On this week's episode of Radio Survivor, Jennifer Waits digs into the hidden college radio history of a technology that took off in the late 1930s. This became really popular. I mean, you can kind of think of it as like the early days of the internet. You know, technologically savvy students on campus were like, yeah, we want a radio station and it's not regulated, so we don't have to worry about FCC rules. Plus, an update on the latest with net neutrality. Stay tuned. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and I am one half of your hosting and production team. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. I also host and produce Radio Survivor. And uh, before we get started here, uh, we're going to, well, first of all, I want, everyone should know that uh, we're going to talk with Jennifer Waits in just a couple of minutes, and she's going to tell us about an interesting kind of license-free radio broadcasting that's almost 100 years old. I'm rubbing my hands together. It's so. basically been mentioned on nearly every single episode of the podcast, but sort of um, well, it's been mentioned a lot lately, yes. In passing, in passing, always in passing. And so we're finally going to find out what it all really means. We're going to dig into that. But first, I wanted to uh, share some, some positive news, I think. Um, just last week, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the FCC's open internet rules also often referred to as network neutrality. What country do we live in? My whole frame, <laughs> the whole the whole way I view this universe has to be adjusted to the idea that sometimes massive telecommunications corporations don't control the outcome of their uh of, of the economics of their business. Well, confused. They do mostly still. <laughs> let's not let's not uh mistake the fact that that these uh, network neutrality rules are not all that restrictive. Okay, good. Frankly, few. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's really a matter of, of very minor concessions in many ways. But but you, the surprise that you're expressing, right, is that you know the the FCC uh, tried to pass open internet rules early in the Obama administration, and the uh, essentially the D.C. Circuit of Court of Appeals sent them back and said that these are not properly justified. Yeah, and basically what it means is that um, – what's a good example? Verizon, right? What does Verizon own? Or Comcast. It's like – Well, they're ISPs. So they can't – Comcast, which also owns uh, NBC content, can't privilege NBC content on its network. Correct. Right. It, so right. So if you are uh, somebody who subscribes to, say, Netflix, uh, Netflix – has equal access yeah. to send you video data that you request. Even though a telecommunications corporation doesn't have an interest in Netflix at the moment. Correct, so right. It doesn't exactly. benefit them in any way to open up their pipes to allow Netflix flicks to flow into its customers. Right. Yeah. And and you know, and, and that means with regard to radio, right? So if if you know it, it also means that uh, Comcast couldn't charge, say, Spotify uh, you know, a fee to say, look, we'll we'll privilege your streams going to our customers so that they can get high bit rate, really high quality, high fidelity. But then we'll throttle uh, other radio stations so that when you go to listen to some community station from across the country, it'll be le- it'll be mono and not as good. So they have to treat those streams equally. And that, this is this goes back to a very long standing principle and provision of the internet called interconnection. The idea is that for the internet even to work, all these internet service providers, whether they're the sort that provide the the, the sort of the infrastructure between your local your Comcast and your Verizons or whether it's a Comcast or Verizon, they peer. It's called peering. And that mm-hmm. means they exchange their traffic because that's how it works. The whole idea is, sure, uh, Comcast bears the cost of the traffic that's on their network locally in your in your town, but somebody else bears the cost of that traffic as it goes across the country or across the world. And if everybody just bears that cost and interconnects freely, well, then it works. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it isn't that um, it's that, neutral. That, that Comcast. Right. It isn't that Comcast doesn't pay uh, the, the Internet provider that they connect to. But that's all they do. Right. It's like paying to get on the highway. They're not charging differentially whether or not the car is carrying three people or whether it's carrying cows. Right. Um, you know, so that's the whole principle there. So um, it's a series of tubes. Exactly. Right. It's a series of tubes. It's not a truck. And so the. 
the uh, FCC proposed these open internet rules. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, look, no, um, you can't regulate the Internet. And the reason why you can't regulate the Internet is that under uh, the George W. Bush administration, uh, the FCC reclassified Internet service. So there's a class of service called common carrier. The most uh, uh, frequent example is telephones. All right, and so I know fewer and few people have landlines, but still, a landline telephone is called a common carrier service, and so it is regulated by the FCC because it's considered to be in the public interest, right? That people should have access to telephones, and 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 therefore, uh, as part of that, the FCC can can dictate the rules for a common carrier service and say things like, um, you may get your home service from CenturyLink. But if you want to have your long distance from some other service, you may. And you may subscribe to other phone-like services through that service that you have in your home. It used to be a bigger deal, right? If you remember, you may remember back in the 90s, there would be all these advertisements for long-distance services all competing for Yeah, we were just explaining this to my 10-year-old son. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, back in when we were kids, it cost a lot of money to call across the country. Right. And, then, then there was, and, then, and then there was deregulation and, and there was competition. And, and what allowed all those different long-distance companies to offer services to you over your local phone owned by a local bell, I mean, your local phone lines owned by a local bell exchange was the fact that they're regulated as common carrier. So the FCC then under the George W. Bush administration changed the classification. They said it's no longer common carrier. It's an information service, not a common carrier service and instantaneously changed the FCC's ability to regulate it. It meant that the FCC had more restrictions on its ability to regulate internet service. And therefore, the corporations that owned the pipes uh, had more freedom to, to – Right, to set rates, change rates, uh, potentially right, uh, charge differential rates. And so when the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals sent back, remanded the last set of open internet rules, they basically told the FCC the only way that this will work – Right. Is if you reclassify the internet under Title II and call it common carrier. Basically, go back in time. Basically, if you roll that back, this will be constitutional. But so long as you do not make it common carrier, you're very limited in how you can regulate the internet. They basically, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals in its decision basically gave them the instructions <laughs> on how to do this. But of course, that's tremendously unpopular with internet service providers. They fought and worked very hard to get the FCC to declassify armies, armies of well suited lawyers and right? lobbyists. You know, yeah. with who were very who are of course welcomed with open arms by uh, then chairman Michael Powell. Um, they worked very hard. The last thing they wanted to see was to this to be rolled back. And so under uh, under the current FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, um, when he was rewriting these rules, spent quite a bit of time trying to to basically square a circle, trying to stick a round peg in a square hole by writing rules that would pass constitutional scrutiny without reclassifying it as as um, as as a uh, common carrier. There's service. been a lot of that business at the FCC in the last generation. Oh yes. Of, of- of the round, the round peg square yes, hole whittling. With, with Chris Terry yeah. last week, right? Um, and Just tell up, the truth. <laughs> he came up with these rules. This is about now, I think, two years ago. And where, where he came up with these rules where they classify things as sort of there would be commercially uh, appropriate uh, discrimination. And people were like, well, what is that? That there would be some level of discrimination of internet traffic that might be okay and that there would be some economic rules, okay. game theory rules, sort of like how Chris talked about last week, um, that would determine what was appropriate or defensible so, or not. So this is this is the time where we get Netflix Netflix uh, ponying up millions of dollars to perhaps, – Perhaps, right. I mean it's, it's really unclear. But that uh, happened. Uh, last year, or two well, that's years different. Ago, right? that, that, that that's entirely different. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's entirely different. But, um, so he, he puts out these rules, trying not to reclassify, and mm-hmm. of course, the public interest community goes nuts. This is look, this is just nonsense. It won't work. You're basically saying that open internet rules will re- will will authorize 
will authorize people to discriminate. Like that's what you're saying. So, you know, this doesn't do what it does. And that was the time when finally John Oliver <laughs> on his on his television show on HBO, is it uh, uh, last week tonight? Is that what it's called? Yes. With John Oliver did a uh, viral video, as it turned out, uh, exploding the, the, the contradictions and the absurdities of that effort by the FCC to try and write these rules without reclassifying the internet. And then, and so then on that proceeding at the FCC, that's when you see millions of responses from the public saying, no, <laughs> this is nonsense. What you have to do is what the court told you to do. Mm. And that is reclassify Round the internet peg. Round peg. As, as, Round hole. <laughs> as common carrier. And, and much too many people surprised mine, mine included. Mm -hmm. Tom Wheeler has a change of heart. Rewrites the proposal and puts right in it, reclassifying the internet to Title II. And my and Gen X cynicism has to be readjusted. Right. And that was, so that, that was a year ago. Can change. That was about a year ago when that happened. And of course, you know, the, the telecoms were chomping at the bit to challenge these rules. Mm. Right. To, to the extent to which uh, at least one small uh, group of telecoms uh, filed ahead of their ability to because they have to be – the rules have to be uh, published in the Federal Register before they're considered to be uh, ready to, for a court challenge. It's a timing thing. But that's what makes any law or any, any federal regulation legit mm -hmm. is its publication in the Federal Register. So, of course, there is um, – there is a, they file suit. This is pretty much every telecom in the United States file suit. And there were hearings uh, late last year, and and the uh, the result came out last week. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals basically said, "We we reject these arguments. We uphold these rules." And you know, why I understand your surprise. For me, it's like, yeah, because the D.C. Circuit told the FCC what to do. Right. The FCC went back and did it, which was their their best cover. Their best cover is to when the court tells you to do something to do it and you're most likely to result with the court agreeing with you. Now, that's not the end of things. It can never it is, possibly well, exactly. be the end of things. It's not the end of things because um, it was heard by a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit. And so the next step is that uh, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, etc., they could appeal this to the full circuit. So that means every judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals could be asked to hear an appeal. Um, and, you know, uh, what they'll decide, we don't know. Whether whether they'll even take up the appeal, we don't know. There's a lot of variables there. And is this uh, – are, are FCC lawyers a part of this? Yeah, FCC lawyers are who defend so, this in, in front of the court. Yeah. So the uh, administration that controls the FCC could have an impact on the outcome. Right. Yeah, it, it it is possible, though not likely, that a uh, a future FCC could say no. We're not going to defend this in court. Right. If the if the uh, Libertarian Party controls the White House, they might they could drop it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the court necessarily would would side with the with the appeal. Right. I mean, the court could also decide. Well, no, we still think this is justified, and this is still, and we're not, you know, they could still reject the appeal, even though, even if FCC court kind of came back, FCC lawyers came back and said, no, we don't care anymore, right? I mean, it's because it, now we're into, you know, we're now into. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a procedural law expert, but I do know enough that 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 wouldn't necessarily finish it off, although it certainly wouldn't wouldn't help, <laughs> right? Um, and so it could go in front of the full panel. And then uh, it could be appealed then to the Supreme Court. Yeet. And again, the Supreme Court would have to choose to hear the appeal, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and grant its uh, certiori or, and, 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 and then hear it. it in the, and the Supreme Court could just look at the judgment, look at, and say, look, no, we think that there's no constitutional argument being made or, or that the, you know, the constitutional arguments that the court has, in, has invoked are all legitimate and we're not going to hear it. So for the time being, open internet rules, net neutrality, continues to be the law of the land, so to speak. 
So we will continue to follow it here at Radio Survivor. Um, it's something I haven't yet written up. Uh, I haven't had a chance to, to kind of uh, do the summary at RadioSurvivor.com, though I hope to do so. And I think we'll probably follow up as we learn a little bit more when the uh, full text of the ruling uh, has been released. Uh, I haven't had, it, I haven't seen it. I don't know that it's been released as we record today. It may be even out by the time yeah, the podcast I'm look, is released. I'm looking into my mental Rolodex for the uh, for the the appropriate, for the appropriate, uh, person yeah, the appropriate email to send out. Well, thanks, thanks for thanks for bringing us up to speed on net neutrality, Paul. So let's uh, we should hear about um, we you, your introduction to this episode of Radio Survivor. You're so coy. You didn't Was say the word. You didn't say the words <laughs> carrier current I did, on purpose. Yeah, on purpose. Let's. Uh, so you you talked to Jennifer about carrier current, which is so exciting because I didn't know what carrier current was until I started uh, hearing Jennifer mention it. Possibly you and and and, and asked you to explain to me or or you know. Uh, what you were talking about, and if I understand it correctly, it's um... well. No, let, let's let let's let Jennifer tell us what. Oh, it is. all right. And well, why is why is why does Jennifer have to know? Why is carrier current something that Jennifer is excited uh, let, about? Let's uh, we'll just let her we'll let her spill all the beans. I can't wait. Hi there, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us on uh, another edition of Radio Survivor. Sure, happy to be here. And so this week, you've, you've got a fun topic, I think. Uh, you're going to talk about a, a class of unlicensed radio, uh, but one that you don't hear much about anymore. And, and I'm, not even sure, I'm not even sure if it exists or not. So, so what, what is this class of radio? Carrier current. What is that? <laughs> so carrier current... Um, popularly happened on college campuses where students figured out ways to broadcast using um, parts of their buildings actually as antennas. So they would build a transmitter and then they'd use metal objects in the building like an electrical system or a gas pipe or a radiator pipe, water pipes, phone lines. That would become the antenna for the broadcast and anybody within a short range of that metal object could hear the radio station that was being broadcast. And it was a boon for colleges who wanted to have radio stations, or for students, really, who wanted to have radio stations. Um, and it led to an explosion of what was known as campus radio starting in the late 1930s. This sounds dangerous, <laughs> right? I mean, because be, I mean, you know, people think about you know they they think of a transmitter, right? And they mostly get this enormous tower in the sky, right? With you know, with with a fence around it and all sorts of warnings, don't get near. And you're like hooking up electrical things to the gas line. <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, I guess it sounds dangerous. And you know, there were different names that have been used for it. Somebody called it flea powered and okay. So it's really low powered then, it's, right? Yeah, so it's so very this low. isn't hundreds of Watts of power. It's just enough to radiate a hundred, a hundred feet or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very low power. Um, and, and in a really weird coincidence, Matthew Lazar actually wrote about this, this week, he wrote about carrier current, um, cause there was this, neat little book that was written in 1980 that chronicled the history of campus radio stations who are using carrier current. And it looked at the time period of 1936 to 1946. Um, and so Matthew wrote about that book and simultaneously Matthew didn't realize that I had been reading a bunch of historical tomes about carrier current, particularly in the 1940s through the 1970s. So it's been very much on my mind as well. So I, I thought it'd be fun to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And if I'm, if I'm not, cor uh, if I'm not incorrect, this is AM radio, correct? It's not FM radio. Yeah, it's AM radio. Uh, and, and in fact, my, my start in college radio was at a carrier current station. So in the 1980s, when I was in college, it was very common, even, you know, into the 1980s for campuses to have carrier current stations. You know, this is before the widespread use of the internet. So you didn't have college stations who were online. Um, no, so nobody if, was streaming online in the 1980s, not even the Defense Department. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I did send email messages of a sort when I was in college in the 80s to my dad. So the internet existed, but 
and it wasn't popular popularly used in any way. So the idea here is that if you're a student on campus, sort of in in any building or maybe in some set of buildings, if you had a radio, you would tune to the AM frequency and you would you would pick up the campus station. But the idea is that the uh, the students in the campus wouldn't have to have a license from the FCC. Is that right? Yeah. So carrier current stations were not regulated or licensed by the FCC. And in fact, there were some colleges that had multiple carrier current stations. So think of a really big campus that has many, many dorms and perhaps different dorm cultures. Um, so I've run across campuses that have maybe four or five different radio stations. Oh, wow. Even. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, if you had, like, the honors dorm or the women's dorm or something like that, they could each have their own station. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely happened. And then some stations set up multiple – or some campuses set up multiple transmitters to transmit the same station to a bunch of dorms. So that was the case at Haverford College where I went to school. Um, They had transmitters so that the station could be heard in different dorms. And then they also set up – transmitters at Bryn Mawr College, which was the women's college a mile away, so that students there could also hear the station. Huh. And and so I guess the idea here is basically you have to have, you know, those connections, right? So if if you're using like the plumbing, I guess the signal's only going to go so far outside the building or something like that. And which is why you need to have a new transmitter in each building. Do you do you know how they got the signal from uh to Bryn Mawr? No, I don't remember. And I know even with carrier current, um, they would also set up lines. Like at Haverford, they had set up a line to the gym so that they could broadcast sporting events too. Right. So they probably Um, just ran wires. (laughs) Yeah. I think you could use uh, something along the lines of uh, a phone, basically what amounts to a phone wire. uh, Because I know that's exactly how – uh, when I was in college in, in the uh, late 80s that we uh, managed to we yeah. get the signal from the studio to the transmitter site because they were at two different places, but on campus. Definitely. And and so, you know, by the 80s, 90s, some of these carrier current systems, um, and, you know, they're largely built by students. So a lot of times it was unreliable and you would have leakage into the neighboring town sometimes too. So, at least at Haverford, I heard accounts of, you know, people would sometimes pick up the station like on their phone lines in the nearby <laughs> town. So, um, you know, even though it was supposed to be only on campus, sometimes that wouldn't be the case um, just because things weren't always, you know, they weren't set up by these professional yeah, engineers. Yeah, they didn't put in the, the proper filters to keep yeah. it out of Ma Bell's lines. Exactly. So, yeah, but for the most part, you know, the FCC really um, didn't regulate carrier current stations, although they made mention of them in various rulings. Um, Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. um, And, you know, as part of low power radio rules, um, they would make mention of carrier current. And it's largely part of the Part 15 rules, which allow for unlicensed broadcasters which we've talked about on the yeah, podcast right. before. I mean, part 15, really, it, it doesn't really allow for unlicensed broadcasting. What It's interesting. It's kind of a weird twist of the regulation. Part 15 are interference rules. So it's the rules that govern how much uh, a device can radiate uh, a radio signal of any kind. So it could be any kind of band without requiring certification or regulation by the FCC. So basically it means carrier current is actually sort of classified, not really as a broadcast so much as acceptable interference. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So they FCC started talking about that um, in 1938, which, which is around, you know, soon after we started having carrier current broadcasters on campus. It's only four years into having an FCC. Yeah, so pretty early on. Um, and then, you know, there have been various proceedings over the years. Um, you know, kind of what happened is, so in 1936, students at Brown set up carrier current stations. Um, and then they kind of evangelized, like, wow, this is really great. You can do carrier current broadcasting on campus. And so word spread and students at a lot of different colleges started building their own carrier current stations. Um, And then in 1941, there was a piece in the Saturday Evening Post 
about these campus broadcasters. So that was a pretty mainstream piece about campus radio. So more people became aware of the existence of this type of broadcasting. And around that time, 1941, there were around 40 campus-only stations that were mentioned. Um, and But there could have been more because it's, it's the kind of thing because there's no like central registry – you know, it, there might be ones flying under the radar that someone had just sort of set up. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of that's kind of the deal with carrier current is it's really hard to know how many stations there were at any given time. Even today, um, it's hard to ascertain. There probably are still some carrier current stations. There are a bunch of college radio stations that mention a carrier current signal on their website, but then if you ask people. They're not quite sure if it still is operational. Um, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing, of course, is the it's easy to double check. You just need to go get a radio. <laughs> I know. That, that has an AM receiver on it and uh, stand somewhere near where you think the, the signal should be. But it, it occurs to me that for a lot of these stations, because they're probably principally Internet stations now, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they don't have a radio in, in, the, uh, in the studio or anywhere in the offices because they don't think they need one. <laughs> Right. And and even at at Brooklyn College, which I visited this year, um, I just followed up with them because when I was there, um, you know, we we found out that they do have a low power terrestrial signal. And I couldn't remember if it was carrier current or even if we had talked about that. And I followed up and they weren't quite sure if it was carrier current or leaky cable. So (laughs) Well, well, leaky cable is is. Uh, to my understanding, is pretty much the same idea as carrier current. It's just that instead of utilizing the electrical system or you know a plumbing system, you lay a, cable. a, a special purpose cable that is an antenna, but like the name describes it, it's leaky. So it it it, it, yeah. it, it it's a radiator, and it's again good for you know a hundred feet or something like that. Yeah. So so they either have carrier current or leaky cable right now. I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there probably are still some carrier current stations, um, at, at one point, you know, as I was reading through various documents, I found, um, it sounds like there could have been as many as 600 carrier current stations. And I don't know if that is solely college stations or if that also included high school and other types of carrier current stations. I think the vast majority of carrier current stations have been on college campuses, um, but but at one point there were rumored to have been over six hundred, which is pretty astonishing. Um, yeah, but, yeah, you know it's so easy to in a lot of ways at that time it would have been very easy to set up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this became really popular. I mean, you can kind of think of it as like the early days of the internet. So mm-hmm. you know, technologically savvy students on campus are like, yeah, we want a radio station, and it's not regulated. Um, by the FCC, so we don't have to worry about FCC rules. Um, they could run advertising if they wanted to, so they could um, be sort of self-sustaining by bringing in ads. And the intercollegiate broadcasting system, which we often refer to as IBS, it started in the very early days of carrier current and was largely interested in helping stations purchase ads collectively. So. Or, or uh, yeah, get um, sell ads collectively. So they would work with big advertisers to get products advertised on these campus-only stations because that was you know an interesting captive audience for big advertisers. Right, so, and, and I mean, and the interesting thing to me here, right, of course, is that uh, regular AM broadcasting, so to so to do it over the air and do it long distances or any really any distance was expensive. <laughs> there was no FM in say mm-hmm. 1939 and, and, and effectively really not FM in 1941. And uh, so it was expensive to have, you know, a real station, so to speak um, way beyond the cost of a student organization in most cases. And right. And sort of in a way it, it, it sounds just like you said, you compare it to internet. It, it sounds like internet radio today that where a lot of colleges, and high schools and other institu- educational institutions uh, kind of almost by default go go to internet broadcasting because it is accessible, it's comparatively inexpensive, and it right and it's not regulated. They don't have to vie uh, for an FCC license. 
Yeah. Um, and so I found some interesting tidbits, too. In, in 1946, the FCC actually, even though they weren't regulating carrier current, they started reserving call letters for college carrier current stations. <laughs> hmm, really? <laughs> so so had- that came up in Fred Kroc's piece, which I'll, I'll, we'll put into the show notes, uh, who wrote about his time at Stanford in the 19, uh, early 1950s. Um, at their then carrier current station, and I didn't get a chance to follow up on it. So I'm 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 glad to hear that you did. Yeah, um, you know, so there was clearly this friendly relationship, and and college stations were, you know, petitioning the FCC and engaged with discussions with them about various things, and so that happened. It was sort of like a nice thing that the FCC did, I guess. Um, and that stopped around 1958. So there are around 12 years where they oh, were wow. sort of setting aside these call letters for carrier current stations. But, you know, beyond that, they're pretty much staying out of the business of carrier current stations. Um, in the 70s, they, the FCC had a notice of inquiry and proposed rulemaking in the matter of carrier current radio stations. And they sent... They actually sent a questionnaire, which they said was a mandatory questionnaire, to 350 <laughs> carrier current stations. I don't know how they could make it mandatory when they don't have licenses, but... Exactly. Well, and there were... Um, <laughs> if, if you, you didn't know, turn it back, you're on double secret probation, I guess. I know. And there were protests and articles written about it. So oh, wow. I think, I think it wasn't necessarily... <laughs> it wasn't warmly received. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't really enforce it. Um, but I think it largely stemmed from the fact that because carry current was unregulated, it was really hard to know how many stations there were. So I think the FCC was interested in, in sort of knowing they wanted to survey the landscape. Um, and, and there was an increase in stations and also an increasing desire for carrier current stations to expand their coverage. So the FCC was largely uninterested before because carrier current stations were just broadcasting to a college campus, um, just to a campus of students. But suddenly there are new opportunities like cable and a lot of carrier current stations wanted to expand and have their signal carried on their local cable system. And then suddenly they would have an audience of the general population in the area, not just college students. So, And, um, and would this have been – so as carrier current over the those lines or would have this had been – uh, what would effectively and it, ex- it existed and does exist uh, cable radio? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, it's um, it's like it was being carried by their local cable systems. Because so that wouldn't I require the FCC uh, to get involved with. It would or wouldn't. It would not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it would not. Um, but interestingly, so this is like the early seventies. Stations are starting to do this more and more. And um, there was one station that actually wrote to the FCC and said we want to start putting our signal on the local cable outlet, which you didn't need to ask permission actually, Mm -hmm. but the station at Clarkson college of technology, they sent a letter to the FCC and the FCC said, you know, yeah, that's fine. Although really carrier current is supposed to be just on the college, you know? So because of that, if you're on the cable system, we'd like you to, have your station comply with basic FCC rules like related to obscenity. Oh, content rules, huh? Uh, and, you know, equal time for candidates, et cetera. Um, and, and by the way, please fill out this questionnaire. So this was around the same time that they were sending out this questionnaire but, to so state. Was this the Nixon administration? This was in 1971. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I asked is that the Nixon FCC – uh, is particularly infamous for having been uh, very, uh, not unexpectedly, uh, for interfering quite a bit into content, and not just in decency, but often political speech. Uh, as I'm sure uh, Matthew could tell us more about, um, they, they were often uh, getting on the case of the Pacifica Network uh, for things going beyond just merely uh, sexual excretory talk. Uh, so it's kind of not surprising to me to hear that, uh, <laughs> that they were also maybe uh, wanting to overstep their, their authority with regard to uh, college stations going on to cable television. Yeah, because when they're only on the college campus, they're not too worried about 18 to, I don't know, 18 to 23-year-olds hearing 
um, nasty talk. Right. But suddenly if it's, you know, on cable in the town, then, you know, the young children might hear traumatizing material. Um, so that was, that was pretty interesting. I, I guess by around 1975, there were more than 50 carrier current stations that had expanded onto local cable. So it was something that people were thinking about. Um, there were also complaints from organizations like National Association of Broadcasters um, who were worried about competition. Oh, of course. Um, you know, carrier currents could ca- carrier current stations could air advertising. I'm not sure how that worked over cable, though. Um, it it, it but, should make a difference. <laughs> um, but but I guess not related to cable. When we were talking about my tour of the Brooklyn College Station. They had plans in the '70s to add actual transmitters in right. town. Yeah. So I think um, you know NAB might have been upset about maybe a situation like that where campus carrier current is getting extended into town so that it's carrier current throughout the city, and and then they might get a little bit upset about that because it's not just isolated on the college campus. Um, so it's interesting because when I was researching the Brooklyn College Station. I had found that tidbit, but I didn't really have the context for it. So now to have more of this context about what was going on with carrier current at the time is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it's so interesting to hear of this uh, style of over-the-air broadcasting, which was unlicensed, and, and it seems like sanctioned, right? So it wasn't merely, it wasn't merely something done extra-legally, but it, it received something along the lines of a sanction from the FCC. It was official to, to some extent um, yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and clearly and it, popular. Yeah, very popular. I guess it was around 1977 that there were rumored to be more than 600 carrier current stations. Um, so, yeah, it, w- it was a big deal. Um, but today, uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like there are many. And, and you, you know, even trying for you to get some uh, confirmation of what might may be still happening at Brooklyn College, for for instance, is difficult to do. And and even if and, they were there, I'd be I would ask who's listening, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, not many people understand the technology. So right. um, often I'll hear people talking about a closed closed circuit station and you never know what that might necessarily mean. Um, so, you know, it could be carrier current. It could be this legal leaky cable that we were talking about. Or um, I'm at uh, ocean County college in Tom's river, New Jersey. When I was a kid uh, in the seventies uh, and eighties, uh, they, they had literal closed circuit, which meant that they, there was a studio it was a real radio studio. They treated it like a station, but there were just speakers in different parts of, in different common areas of the college uh, that were playing the station. But it was, it was literally just, you know, wires run uh, between different places. There was no carrier current. There was no broadcast. It, but that was the radio station, and they treated it as such. Yeah, I, I've been to stations that have had that. I think City College in San Francisco, they just basically had that sort of system. Um, but that was still a big deal. Like, that's how people found out about Kennedy's assassination was over the closed circuit, right, right. just, you know, being blasted into the classrooms. So, and and you can't really, it's hard, it's probably hard for people to understand today, but carrier current stations um, often had very active staffs and active listenership. And, you know, at my college, it got piped into the cafeteria. So most people during mealtime heard the radio station, Um, There might have been 200 people participating in the radio station. So even though today it sounds very humble, um, these stations had a lot of power on campus and reached a large percentage of the students. So they were a really big deal. And there were so few alternatives at that time. And if, if we go back to the 1970s, FM was ascendant, you know, but it was not yet the primary radio service AM was still the primary radio service and on AM radio at that time in, in just about any, any Metroplex and certainly would be true in smaller uh, communities. There wouldn't have been many stations and they probably would have been principally top 40 or they would have been, uh, you know, aimed at a much older demographic, You know, if it wasn't top 40, it was probably something like what we 
often is called beautiful music or nostalgia, right? It would have been Frank Sinatra and, and Peggy Lee, uh, or maybe some some kind of light classical music. There really wouldn't have been much else that uh, that probably a lot of students would have been interested in. So having a, a campus station providing something that is truly, uh, you know, uh, in, in the in the in, in the realm of interest of of college students, it's probably fantastic, especially on AM radio. Yeah, and and these stations were largely run by students, so it was it was more like a club, and you know, so a really fun time too. Um, but today, you know, I mean, not it's not even the problem of of students not owning radios, which which seems to be a trend, but the AM radio dial is a disaster mm-hmm. right you know so at the fcc uh in the last couple of years uh they had a, a proceeding which was which was called the am revitalization proceeding right which presupposes that am radio is it needs revi- revitalizing and one of the biggest problems it faces is interference and that interference comes from uh, comes from these same devices that students and all of us are using all the time. It comes from from smartphones. It comes from computers. Um, it comes from all sorts of electrical equipment. Uh, it comes from fluorescent lights in particular or compact fluorescent lights. And so I just think that these days it would be very difficult uh, to have a nice, clean carrier current AM signal in so many colleges because there's just so much noise to compete with uh, from devices that, you know, are authorized to emit a certain amount of noise, right, under those same Part 15 rules to compete with it, right? The the, the carrier current station, unlike a, a licensed broadcast station, doesn't have the right to be protected. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um so yeah, clearly there are a lot of challenges and it's not surprising that we can't really confirm that there are many carrier current stations that are still operating. Well, certainly if there's anyone listening who knows about a currently operating carrier current AM station on a college or high school campus or really anywhere, we'd love to hear about it and we and, and, and maybe have them on the show. We'd love to share the existence of these stations and make sure they're documented and they don't get forgotten about. Drop us a line at podcast at radiosurvivor.com or, or go to Facebook and leave us a note on our Facebook page or you can tweet us at Radio Survivor. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to hear from you. Uh, Jennifer, this is great. I'm so so glad you did this research because it's it's one of these things. I, I mean, I've known about for a long time, and and I certainly I researched uh, more when I was in college and even when I was a teenager because I was sort of fascinated by the idea of having this having a, a authorized but uh, but unlicensed uh, station. Um, although I never, you know, I always wanted to kind of build one, but but never quite knew how to. And, and probably even by uh, by like 1989 when I was in college. I probably would, it would have been a welcome thing <laughs> for me to do in my college dorm. So it, it's great for you to sort of shed some light and some real, I mean, really, I think lost history there, especially with regard to the, uh, carrier currents relationship with the FCC. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a lot more out there than you might realize. And a number of people did studies about the content of carrier current stations over the years too. Um, so it's it's definitely a rich area, and, and hopefully I'll write up some of this for Radio Survivor, too. Yes, well, and, and so you file your reports at radiosurvivor.com. Every week you do a roundup of things going on in college radio, College Radio Watch, and that's every Friday, so people should definitely check there. And we'll have some references, uh, some links to some of the things like that we've discussed here at our show notes. It's radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Jennifer, thanks a lot. This is a tremendously fun topic. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, that was really fun, Paul. I'm so glad that you and Jennifer had that uh, in-depth conversation about carrier current. Yeah. And and the interesting thing about it is, of course, that uh, there continues to be unlicensed, legal, so-called legal unlicensed radio broadcasting today on FM and AM. But, you know, the, the AM version resembles carrier current. 
And the, the reason why, of course, is that you can take, have a very tiny bit of power and broadcast not very far, but do so without a license. In the building or on the block. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, there's a whole subculture of people who hack these things, who do everything they can to stay within the letter of the actual rules, but go as far as they can. And it's because AM radio, the rule, the rules are sort of different for every single band, right? So it's different for FM, it's different for the TV bands, it's different for the AM bands. And with the AM band, the rules are li- are, 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 you can play with them a little bit. Hmm. And so there's, there are stations all over the country that, and they, who publicize themselves, but you know, in many cases only cover a couple of city blocks, maybe if you get up high, right? Um, you know, and get a well sighted, uh, uh, antenna, but that, that broadcast for this. Yeah. Um, and, and often they're used, uh, in AM, in, uh, they're used by real estate agents. The so-called talking oh, house. Oh yeah, come and tour the house. Yeah, they'll put up the frequency on the uh, on like a sign so that someone sitting you know who drove by and might pull over could tune in and listen to the description of the house. Uh, they it's used to literally be used, sitting in the closet. Yeah, they used to be used in gyms, so someone could like they could have one TV. Like it was before they had like the personal TVs at all the equipment. They might be one TV, and you'd bring your AM radio and tune it to this frequency. Now the gyms that do that. Which are going away, I think, because they mostly have the little personal TV. Everyone's got yeah TV yeah. in their pocket, but then they moved to FM because it uh, sounds better. So it's like uh, the drive-through experience too, which I've never done. But you could ter- you could listen to the radio, you could listen to the movie on your on your drive movie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Same 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 idea. They would use the so-called leaky cable, right? So the the, the leaky cable is basically a long piece of cable buried in the ground that radiates the signal about 10 feet, 15 feet away. So it's enough ah, for, to make it into your car because uh, if they use, because uh, you know, a drive-in movie lot might be so huge. They might actually not be able to get it from one end to the other with a part 15 compliant uh, transmitter. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so uh, in, in, in the FCC rules, you can get a transmitter in a, in a broadcast and AM band and you can use up to 100 milliwatts of power. So it's one-tenth of a watt. Low-power FM is 100 watts. So it just gives you a sense. So, it's, so, you know, so basically it's a thousandth of the power of a low-power FM station. Mm-hmm. And AM and FM aren't quite equivalent, but for our purposes, it's close enough. Um, so you basically, it's like a little tiny, tiny station, right? And you think that... And you're allowed to use an antenna, but the antenna and the feed line, so the, the, the cable that attaches to your antenna, can combined be no longer than three meters. Okay. So it means that your transmitter basically has to be right next to your antenna for all intents and purposes uh, because uh, you couldn't put it in your house and then put the, the feed line out because as soon as you're over three meters, it's, you're, you're done. You've broken the law. You've broken the law. And the FCC, not frequently, but has gone out and tracked down people who were running quasi part 15 operations. I mean, they weren't being completely pirate, but they had bent the rules too far so that they were now into the realm of piracy, basically, and, and, and handed out, uh, handed out notices of apparent liability. Um, which usually is enough because usually you, if you go off the air, they'll just leave you alone at that point. This, Oh, so there's so there's stations. So, you know, but this is a real thing and people are still doing it to this day. In fact, there was a point at which Pacifica a number of years ago was uh, had was actually seriously considering setting up a parallel AM service in Spanish where they would find sites to set up these transmitters around the city. Uh, I think it was in Los Angeles where they would broadcast a parallel AM program, uh, but on these low-power AM transmitters, legal low-power. Neat. Um, but there is a, there's actually a, a station in L.A. that's pretty well-known called Kachunk. Or, I'm sorry, it's, I think it's Kachung. K-C-H-U-N-G radio. Mm-hmm. So they use a Part 15 AM transmitter in downtown LA, but then mostly people listen to them on the internet. And they behave kind of like a community station. Uh, you know, it, it tends towards the arty, and the uh, and and the sort of more uh, esoteric, right? Uh, than 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 like your typical community. What are their station. call letters? They don't. They don't have call letters because oh, okay. they don't because they're not a legal station. They're called Kachung K C H U N G. 
Interesting. Uh, and you can find them online. We'll put it uh, into the show notes. But it's still a service, and you can go, and there are a number of companies that sell uh, transmitters that they certify to be Part 15 compliant if you use them according to instructions. And you could put your own AM radio station on the air uh, that might be heard for blocks. <laughs> this discussion makes me feel so philosophical about what the point is mm-hmm. of of a broadcast, of a radio. And because uh, the my first – the weird thing is like for the first thing I think is like we have the internet now. So mm-hmm. it it's all it's all nice. Isn't that so sweet that people had so much fun back before there was the internet? But they don't need to do any of this garbage cuz uh we you know, it's it's all it's all just so um easy and convenient. And yet as we learned because of the changes in the uh as we learned earlier this year because of changes in the uh fees that online stations right. pay uh in exchange for playing music, in fact, a lot of online stations can't afford to be there at all. It reminds me a little bit of the argument that I uh was exposed to. I can't Oh, uh back back in my Berkeley city council days, uh the the mayor read a, you know, the the there's a proclamation honoring a bunch of very uh, sweet uh, old white guys who came in with their uh, ham radio expertise and were all uh, um, proclaimed to be uh, to, to to have an important role to play in in the city and the the argument being uh, was that um, in times of uh, uh, of emergency these ham radio guys who are really just playing with a technology that was but this is really awesome true. when they were boys. But this is really true. Yeah, so during, during, hurricane, during yeah. hurricane Katrina, in particular, hams were, were utterly vital. Uh, just a week ago, there was a big Northwest ham convention uh, just north of Portland. And uh, part of the hamvention was a first responders kind of summit where folks who have a particular type of equipment called high-frequency equipment, so it's small and it's portable, um, got together because they formally organize what to do when the big one hits. And, and, and here on the West Coast, the big one, and in, in Oregon in particular, is the big earthquake and tsunami, yeah. which is sort of predicted to happen. We don't know when. But is predicted to happen. So, so you know, and uh, to the extent to which you know, it seems like, oh, isn't this sweet? Well, when when there's no electricity and there's no cell phone, and you know, which means therefore you also have no internet. Boy, it's sure nice to have a transmitter of any kind. Yeah. So it's it's uh it it's all it's all fun and games until it's not anymore. Right. So it's it's nice it's nice to know that some people are are, are keeping the flame alive of this. Um, Outdated technology, well, basically. And, and it's still, if you think about people in their cars, are principally still using radios. But I, I, to me, it's like a there. I can see the the horizon. There's a countdown clock in my in my old man brain mm-hmm. that recognizes that 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 the days are numbered. That it really is going to be a a, a smartphone based. Uh, and yet, driving a, a smartphone-based driving technology, which I'm all for. for. Listening, for, we're going to we're going to be Bluetoothing. Yeah. are what we what we want when we want it on demand. Well, of course, and and you know, as a podcaster, certainly I support that. Yeah, but understanding that the minute you know you're stuck in traffic, <laughs> right, right, and you don't know why on some highway, and you don't move for an hour. But wouldn't you just say Siri? Why am I stuck in traffic? And then Siri would. But tell what if you everybody why? else is saying Siri? Why am I stuck in traffic? And Siri never answers you. Yeah, I mean, I've had that happen uh, in situations where I know I have signal, but I'm at I'm at some big event, and everybody else is on their smartphone and trying to stream or trying to get right. Siri to answer because Siri isn't on your phone. Siri's on an Apple server somewhere in the somewhere world, somewhere far away. And and you don't and you just, and you can't get a map and that's you can't an irony get an answer. that everyone asking the same question at the same time means nobody gets an answer exactly so or or you know exactly or you're someplace which where there is no where there is not good data service because well, those places still exist devil's advocate where will the professional or even volunteer radio broadcaster even have a chair anymore. 10 years from now, 15 years from now to, to answer that question in a low power FM station. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that this is that this I is mean, why you're stuck so. in traffic. Yeah, uh, it'll be a community station. It'll be probably a public station will still exist and still provide some of that. And there will be still be a few commercial stations with a live human being uh, where they might be able to provide up to minute. Uh, news and weather at some point. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for all of that, I mean, I'm not a Luddite. I use my smartphone all the time. I listen to internet radio all the time. I listen to podcasts all the time. 
all of these things are are things I use and I like and I have no no problem with. Um, but you know, here we are. You know, radio it works. And and even so, you talk about you know the you know the little low powered, and which seems yeah. like even more kind of cute. I think, as you put it, yeah. Um, and yet, when you think about it, though, you're basically talking about a neighborhood radio right. station. Well, I'm. I'm. What I realized is, I just took a big road trip, and I finally left the big city and went out into. So we rural. Want, don't we want to do that on the next show? Yeah, but still, it's relevant now. Okay. So yes, we're going to talk about my road trip on the next show. But what what happened to me is, I just realized. Uh, again, because of course I knew this deep down somewhere, but the, um, the network is not so, uh, it's not a given once you, once you remove yourself from the big city and, uh, my, you know, there are places where the phones worked, where, where our smartphones got a signal and there are places where our smartphones didn't get a signal. And there were places where the internet, uh, was based on the weather. We are staying at a very nice hotel where all of a sudden it got cloudy and they didn't have the internet anymore at our hotel. And, uh, and so the, in those sorts of, uh, communities, one of which I, we're going to talk about next on the next episode, but in those sorts of communities, the internet is not as reliable and wouldn't, wouldn't a community radio station or any kind of, or sometimes they're not, it's not that reliable, even in big city, even in big metropolitan cities. Yeah. It depends on, yeah, it depends on what you can afford. It depends on what you can afford, where you are. I mean, there's all sorts of variables there. And that's the thing about broadcast. You put up a transmitter. It goes everywhere it's meant to go. Right? I mean, so so you, you can take into account uh, geographic conditions, hills, valleys, things like that. And then occasionally weather, but only occasionally weather might might be an interfering factor. But otherwise, it goes where it's supposed to go, no matter who and no matter who's on the receiving end, as long as they have an appropriate radio receiver, they will receive that signal if it's there and it doesn't have, you don't have to have another transmitter somewhere else. I mean, people do, there's a reasons why you would do that, but from the very principle of it, it just works. And even if you talk about, I think, you know, as I said, you know, we started off talking about, you know, super low power, legal low power, flea power, as it's often called uh, transmitters. But if you're in a dense urban area, you might be covering hundreds of people, mm-hmm. right? And not that they're all tuning in, but you might be able to provide a super hyper local radio service that, again, does not dis- – basically, at least in, in, in the United States, doesn't discriminate based upon uh, your socioeconomic status because a radio is is simply cheap enough that it's accessible to just about everyone, Um you know, and and we forget about that when 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 most people you know uh, have access to to smartphones and such, and have some level of data plan that might allow them to participate in internet radio or or podcasting or streaming music, but also understanding that you know their data plans often put a limit on top of that of how much listening there can be, and there's no limit to how much radio you can listen to if you can plug it into an outlet or can afford to buy some AA batteries in most cases. So I, I just always think it's interesting, and, and and often people will write to us at Radio Survivor saying, "Well, I, you know, how can I how can I do, you know, low power FM or something like this?" And of course, at this point, you can't get a license. Uh, the licensing window is closed. Uh, licensing window for most stations is closed, and people want to be doing these things. And we'll say, "Look, you you can look into these, you know, legal low power. Understand that you know it's up to you to take the precautions to make sure that you're following uh, the relevant rules." Um, but you could start a station and, you know, if, if you are interested in, in only covering a small area and maybe providing a relatively limited service and are just having fun, frankly. Yeah. It's interesting how it all works uh, really well with um, certain dense populations, mm-hmm. you know, students in their dorms right. or, or uh, people living in a building. I'm reminded of the – it's a legend now in my mind, even though it's real life, of the um, – during Hurricane Katrina – uh, New Orleans, uh, the the Superdome had its own radio station to to help to help everyone get yep. on the same page uh, in that in those difficult times. Exactly, um, you know, and there is a concept called Mini FM, pioneered by uh, Tetsuo Kogawa, who is a uh, communications theorist from Japan. 
Um, and he pioneered this in the, uh, in the seventies and eighties in Japan, in Tokyo, again, a very dense place. Mm-hmm. And his idea, uh, is that the, the sort of, uh, unregulated spectrum was even less regulated, uh, there in Japan. So you could create little FM transmitters. And he thought the idea was right. You, you would do this and you throw a radio party. So you, you, you put the signal on the air and then you say, well, everyone come over. We're going to sing karaoke. We're going to have some beers. We're going to have fun. And you can tell us about what's going on in your world or what's going on in the neighborhood or what's important to you. And, and you know, he thought, well, this is, this is a way of, of sort of bridging divides and especially in a, in a faceless, you know, big urban yeah. area like Tokyo. Um, and it got to the point where, where um, the Japanese government, a regula- regulatory authority over, over broadcast, uh, explicitly uh, condoned it. And, and, and it went a little higher power than what would be permitted in the U.S. It basically said there is a class of unlicensed broadcasting that anyone can participate in. Uh, you know, you have to bear any inf- interference, meaning, you know, but as long as you keep it at these sort of power levels, it's more or less OK. So, I mean, there's this there's actually a, a long history in, in contemporary history of people trying to use, you know, low power broadcasting of all sorts to bring communities together, to bring information services to communities for all sorts of purposes. Uh, and, and, and I always find it heartening, right? That, that there's still all this interest and, and we'll, we'll link to on the, um, on our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Um, their lists and lists and directories of all these people who are running little uh, AM. And then it's also available on FM part 15 stations. Uh, all over the country, some of which also broadcast online, some of which don't. My mind, there's a lot of food for thought. I'm chewing on a lot of ideas right now. It's so interesting. Uh, I'd love to hear anyone in the audience, if you if there's a station you know about, do you run a Part 15? Have you heard one? Or is there some other kind of interesting station you'd, you'd like to learn more about? Let us know. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm especially interested in the idea, you know, Paul just uh, spit out that anecdote about these Japanese radio parties. Uh, my, the, my, the wheels are turning in my mind. What other uses for tiny radio stations can you think of or are you aware of having existed you know carrier current so that college uh, students can share music and talk content with each other was how this uh, conversation was launched but i'm just thinking of all the different ways that um that radio can be put to use to to bring people together one of the longest standing uh, pirate stations in the country is uh, Human Rights Radio in Springfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. which was started uh, by a man named Ambana Kantako, who, um, who is blind, and he started out as Tenants' Rights Radio, right. because or Tenants' Rights Association, so WTRA, because um, he felt that the people in the public housing that he lived in, in Springfield, Illinois, uh, were being abused, were being, were being mistreated, and had, in many cases, having their rights violated, um, and the uh, authorities there were doing everything in their power to prevent them from organizing, to, to prevent them from using common spaces. And he thought, well, you know, what do I do? Put together a newsletter? He goes, you know, what, you know, they'll probably take them out of the mailboxes. They'll probably keep them from being distributed. But if I start a radio station, everybody's got a radio. We can begin to talk about these issues and we can organize this way. And, um, you know, he, he, he grew the scope of his station to, to focus on human rights, but he he's on the air more than 20 years now in Springfield. Hmm. Um, you know, and that public housing complex no longer exists, uh, but he is still on the air uh, bringing, you know, message uh, of human rights to the Springfield airways where probably you would have a hard time hearing it there in the, uh, in the land of Lincoln. Yeah. So give us an email if you know of any other uh, uh, examples of this sort of of this sort of uh, broadcasting, because I, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear more. And you know, uh, we haven't made a pitch for this in a while, but we'd love to get this show onto actual radio stations as well. Uh, I mean, you know, we're- some of those stations might be very tiny. Exactly, and and currently, I mean, if you have a station you want to play the show, you're welcome to. Uh, aside from one recent episode, we keep everything clean. And FCC approved with regard to language. Uh, the only caveat is that, you know, it's a podcast. So sometimes it's 45 minutes and sometimes it's 75 minutes. Sometimes we take a week off. Sometimes. But so if we're going to get to the show to the point where Rarely. where it's where it is consistent every week, there is there is a show to air that is a consistent length and can and will be predictable. 
um, we need your help because that requires extra time. It requires extra money for infrastructure. And of course, you know, for someone to sit down and do all that work, it doesn't just happen. Uh, we could use your help to do that. Uh, we're raising funds to help support Rio Survivor and help support uh, this project uh, at Patreon, patreon.com slash radio survivor. It's where you pledge a dollar, $2, $10, a month. And that helps to, you know, when everyone pitches in, then we have this consistent amount of money that no, we, we know we can depend upon. Budget. You know, right? So when you get a one-time donation, which we certainly appreciate and you could make at radiosurvivor.com slash support, um, it's wonderful, but it means, you know, it's, it's good money this month, but we don't know about next month. And when you can uh, spread that, that donation out over time, it helps make things predictable and helps us make promises to say non-commercial radio stations around the country that they can expect to get the program every single week in a consistent, fa- in a consistent fashion. And, and we want to offer that program to them free. There are lots of programs out there that are available to stations at a cost. And, you know, many public stations, maybe bigger community stations are able, they have the funds so that they could pay for it. But we know that the folks who really could use the message at, at low power FM stations, at college stations, at a lot of smaller community stations, uh, they don't have fees to go and acquire programming. So we want to make this available to them for free and we can do so with your help. So give us a hand. Uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash radio survivor or go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and learn all about it. And we really help appreciate any help you can give us. Yeah, thank you so much uh, to everyone for for listening, and thank you for considering uh, offering us that help. That's very nice. Uh, See you next week. See you next week. 